Welcome, my friends. Welcome once again to this week's podcast. And this week, we're going to take a journey into some very strange territory. We're going to talk about what's on most of our minds today, and that's the recent presidential debate. Now, I'm not going to tell you who won or try to make a stab at who you should vote for. That's none of my business. That's entirely up to you. But I am going to take a stab at what Jesus has to say about how we ought to treat one another and how that horrible debate, that mind-boggling hour and a half that we recently experienced, represents something so much more than just two old men on a stage going at each other. There is more here beneath the surface that we need to talk about. We'll begin with some beautiful music. Lord knows we could all use that in this day and time. Just sit back and enjoy as our music director, Belinda, opens our worship time with a beautiful piece of music. Let's call ourselves to worship.
Our scripture readings today come from both Matthew and Luke, and not surprisingly, since I'm talking about the recent presidential debate, the scripture lesson is about ways in which we can love our enemies. First, from the fifth chapter of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your God in heaven. For God makes the sun that rises on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly God is perfect. And then in the sixth chapter of Luke, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your God is merciful. Today's hymn is Who is Like the Lord, and it was written by Holland Davis and Lenny LeBlanc, and first released on their album Who is Like the Lord, which was from 1998 from Maranatha Music. It's Lyrics come from the Psalms and from the Old Testament prophets. Who is like the Lord my God, compassionate and full of mercy? Who compares to your great love? There's none in all the earth. I will sing of your love and grace that covers all my guilt and shame. In all the earth, who is like the Lord? Today's hymn is called, Who is Like the Lord? You're all that I ever wanted. You're all that I ever need And though I wasn't looking You came after me For your love for me is eternal And this I know is true I could never repay the debt Of love I owe to you For who is like the Lord my God, compassionate and full of mercy? Who compares to your great love? There's none in all the earth. I will sing of your love and grace that shatters all my guilt and shame in all the earth. Who is like the Lord? You're all that I ever want. 
wanted. You're all that I ever need. And though I wasn't looking, you came after me. For your love for me is eternal. This I know is true. I could never repay the debt of love I hold to you. For who is like the Lord my God, compassionate and full of mercy, who compares to your great love, none in all the earth. I will sing of your love and grace, that shatters all my guilt and shame in all the earth who is like the Lord for who is like the Lord my God compassionate and full of mercy who compares to your great love there's none in all the I watched the first presidential debate this last week, and I must say, it was a painful and agonizing experience. I know that many of you began to watch it and then turned it off shortly after the first 15 or 20 minutes, and for that, I do not blame you. It kept me awake at night. It was a horrible mess. Right after it was over, all those who had been hired to speak on all the different news cycles and news channels were so shaken by what they'd just seen. NBC News' Lester Holt said, If hearing this debate is over was music to your ears, you might not be alone. What could have been a low point in American political discourse, certainly in any modern debate we've ever seen, just took place over an hour and a half. ABC News' George Stephanopoulos said, That was the worst presidential debate I've ever seen. Fox News' Brett Beyer said, I do feel like we've been through something. You at home may feel it too. CBS's Gail King said it was painful to watch. PBS's Judy Woodruff said, I've never seen a debate like this one. It was more of a brawl at times than a debate. And CNN's Dana Bush could only resort to cursing, saying that was a blank show. Susanna Guffrey said, I think so many in this country watching this, your jaw just dropped. You can't pretend this was a normal debate, a normal example of American democracy at work, a normal tussle between foes. This was different. This was an all-out grudge match. It was undignified at many times. It was cringeworthy at many times. Chuck Todd simply called it a train wreck, and others called it a dumpster fire. Andrea Mitchell said she's been covering debates since 1976, and I've never seen anything like this. 
Carl Rove said, I'm not sure it was very edifying or enlightening for the viewers, especially particularly those who are trying to figure out who to vote for. And James Carville said, Chris Wallace should get combat pay. And Geraldo Rivera said, let me defend Chris Wallace. I mean, by God, the guy signed up to moderate a debate, and he ended up trying to referee a knife fight. I think Brian Williams summed it up. It was contentious, but it also went beyond contentious, well into darkness. So what happened? How did those two men become the ones on that stage debating publicly in such a horrifying way? Why did they constantly interrupt each other? Why did they constantly single each other out for name-calling? At one point, one of them called the other a liar, which is not uncommon in politics, I suppose. But then it went beyond that, and one called the other stupid, and the retort was, shut up, man. It was a dumpster fire. It was a train wreck. It was an embarrassment. So then we are left with this question. How did this train wreck dumpster fire ever happen? How did those two men become the candidates that we put up on that stage, and how did they react in such a horrible, terrible way? Well, I think we know the answer to that question. We put them up there on that stage. I don't think there's any doubt of that. We put them up there on that stage when we refused to listen to any other point of view but our own. We put them up on that stage when we don't just oppose other points of view, but also hate the people who disagree with us. We put them up on that stage when we only vote for candidates who represent our very narrow view of what should happen in this country, and we won't even consider men and women of good character who might seek compromise or reconciliation with the other side. We just want the other side to be utterly squashed and totally defeated. We put them up on that stage when we tear down or steal or deface political signs that support points of view other than our own, or when we unfriend anyone on social media simply because they post the opposite stance. We put them up on that stage by tolerating this behavior and labeling it as, oh well, that's just politics, when you know we would never put up with this in all the other realms of our life. We put them up on that stage when we let a 24-hour news channel present a single point of view because that's all we want to hear. Only the positions that we agree with and nothing that challenges us to think in other ways. We put them up on that stage when we won't find common ground that would help us work together and instead fan the flames of the issues that separate us and cause us to hate each other and despise even being in the same room with each other. And just in case you want to say, oh sure, loving your enemies is great for church and great for the Bible, but it would never work in politics. Those two men on the stage couldn't possibly do what Jesus is calling us to do to love one another. I want to tell you a story that helps us understand it doesn't have to be this way. This is actually a story from an article that is an excerpt from a book, The President's Club, Inside the Most Exclusive Fraternity, and it's written by Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy. Let me just read this excerpt. No relationship in history has quite been like the bond between George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, the man who defeated him, in 1992. 
The connection surprised both men and astonished many of their longtime aides. Bush would go as so far as to suggest more than once that he might be the father figure that Bill Clinton never had, a notion that the younger Clinton never disputed. And if the closeness of the relationship surprised people, so did its origin. It was Bush's son, President, who made it happen. Fifty-eight minutes after midnight on December 26, 2004, a tremor erupted 30 miles below the surface in waters off the coast of Sumatra. When the waves came ashore hours later, parts of towns and cities, residents along the coasts of Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and Thailand were simply swept away. The tsunami left more than 165,000 people dead, tens of thousands missing, and millions homeless. The sheer number of corpses choked morgues and medical facilities and raised fears of famine and disease. Back in Washington, then-President George W. Bush and his advisors searched for an appropriate way to coordinate and direct the outpouring of aid from all these private sources, which would quickly dwarf anything governments could do. It was the president himself who came up with the idea of asking his two predecessors to work together. Both were proven fundraisers in very different realms, and both had world-class Rolodex indexes. Bush and Clinton were described many times as the Oscar and Felix of American politics, one proper and prudent, the other all appetite and instinct. Clinton's presidency tested the question of whether you could run the country like a series of all-night bull sessions, while one of Bush's favorite questions, what if we do nothing, defined the best and worst of his whole presidency. Their hard-fought 1992 campaign had left deep scars. Clinton, then 46, made repeated reference to Bush's age and called the incumbent president old. Bush had called Clinton a bozo at one point and suggested that his dog knew more about foreign policy than Clinton did. Bush had always assumed he was going to win right up to the end, and when he lost, he took the defeat hard. But Bush the Younger, now president, had good reason to think that ten years on the scars had healed enough. It helped that both men were now former presidents. At the opening of the Clinton Library in Little Rock in November of 2004, the elder Bush had delivered gracious remarks about Clinton that delighted the huge crowd gathered in a driving rainstorm. He said, It has to be said that Bill Clinton was one of the most gifted American political figures in modern times. Believe me, I learned that the hard way. He made it look too easy, and oh, how I hated him for that, he said. Later, inside the museum, the two paired off while touring the modern glass-wrapped facility that overlooks the Arkansas River. Bush and Clinton got lost in conversation and fell far behind the main party of dignitaries. Within days after the tsunami hit, 41 and 42 were in the West Wing with 43, getting their marching orders for what was supposed to be a fairly, fairly narrow assignment. Tour the region, ask local governments for advice about how to target and deliver private aid, and then come back to the United States and get busy raising money. The White House put an Air Force Boeing 757 and a small team of State Department handlers at their disposal. The two men worked virtually nonstop, on their four-day swing through the region. Clinton told friends that Bush made the alliance work 
because the older man had to swallow his pride and embrace a former opponent that had defeated him. Clinton said, he deserves far more credit than I do. Now, once back in the States, the two men became an item. The ex-president's club had, in its history, no president for this public display of affection. They greeted fans together at the Super Bowl in January. They played golf with Greg Norman in a rainy charity tournament in March. The next day, Clinton checked himself into a New York hospital to remove scar tissue and fluid from around his left lung. And within hours, his, president, his predecessor Bush was on the phone checking up on him. How do you feel? What do your doctors say? Are you sore? How much can you exercise? Are you using your treadmill? <laughs> Dr. Bush was back on the case a few weeks later when the White House asked 42 and 41 to join Bush 43 on the Air Force One flight to Rome for the funeral of Pope John Paul II. The senior Bush told Clinton not to worry. The pace would be manageable, and besides, there would be a doctor on board at all times. When Clinton told his own skeptical physicians he was making an overseas trip so soon after major surgery, he explained that his friend in Maine said everything would be okay. The rest of the Bush family looked on with amusement. Barbara Bush, the elder's wife, began referring to the two men as the odd couple. Jeb Bush, the son, the Florida governor, announced that he was going to refer to Clinton from now on as bro. And at the White House White Tie Gridiron Dinner in Washington that spring, Bush 43 joked about how Clinton, recovering from his March surgery, woke up surrounded by his loved ones, Hillary, Chelsea, and my dad. Teaming up, as they did in the middle of an ugly political era, the odd couple was a hit with the public. It had been a long time since Americans had actually seen politicians of different parties work together to achieve anything, much less two presidents who at one time seemed to dislike each other, and then invite the rest of the country to join in the effort. Both men knew they were modeling an alternative method in an age of partisan political cage fights. I think people see George and me, Clinton once observed, and they say that is the way our country ought to work. Let's pause for a moment and use our imaginations. Can you imagine what it would be like if in the days that followed that horrific debate, both of the gentlemen who were involved on that stage would call one another, would maybe meet for coffee someplace and talk about how horrible they'd been to each other, would vow that the next time they meet in public discourse, they would argue they would righteously be indignant towards one another, but they would end the name-calling, they would end the personal attacks on each other and their families, they would, in short, carry out just the same kind of teaching that Jesus had taught. Whether they wanted to call it Jesus' teachings or not, maybe they just want to emulate the odd couple from decades before. But no matter what the reason... What would it be like in our imagination if these two who had so ruined the public discourse of the presidential debate would decide that never again will we treat each other like that? What would that be like? My friends, Jesus had something to say about our enemies. Love them, he said. 
Heap your love upon them. Take care of them. Loan them without expecting anything in return. And what have we done with that good advice? We've turned it into the worst trash fire, dumpster fire, political cage fight, the worst thing we could possibly imagine. And it was you and I that put them up on that stage. Let's pray together. Almighty God, fill us with the heart of someone who loves. Fill us with the heart that can stand up for what we believe, speak truth to power, and know that being angry in righteousness is just what we're called to do. But speak to us about our enemies, those who oppose us, those who disagree with us. Help us to find new common ground where we might work together. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be a dumpster fire. It doesn't have to be the worst thing we've ever seen. But we do need to know. We are putting them up on that stage. We are the ones that caused this to happen. And so starting right now, today, let's find a new way. A new way in which we can love our enemies. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Well, my friends, the podcast has come to an end. I charge us all with the duty of never letting a debate like that happen again. It's in our power to change the world one thought, one act, one moment at a time. Jesus taught us the right way. Love our enemies as I offer the benediction. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rains fall soft upon your fields. And may God hold you in the palm of his hand. God will hold you in the palm of his hand. Amen. Amen. My friends, the service here has ended. We need to get busy. Amen.